Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus, and this episode is part two of Calming Leadership, how we as leaders can be a steady presence in a world fractured by anxiety with Rich Volotis. This episode isn't meant to stand alone, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to part one. Enjoy! I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to learn to abide with ourselves and with one another and with God. And at the core of it, it's an invitation to interiority, interior examination. To hold space, to have um, a community where this is happening amidst the massive difficulties of our culture is very hard. The last couple of years, I've said that we are living in a CPR world. And by CPR, it's our hearts are ailing. We're, we're in need of some resuscitation. And the CPR has stood in my mind for the, con, uh, you know, for the convergence of three forces. Of COVID, of political idolatry, and racial hostility. And the convergence of these three powers in the last few years have wreaked havoc in our families, in our communities, in our individual lives. We are in a CPR world. And so I've seen the fractures and I have seen God at work in some remarkable ways when we take the time to be present to ourselves, present to God, and present to one another. I want to just share two ways and then show how it's possible. Again, my congregation, like yours, in some degree or another, um, has some diversity, how people see the world. It might be more culturally monolithic or racially monolithic, but there are varying degrees of diversity in terms of how people see the world. I talked about that webinar that we did with the Trump supporter and the Biden supporter. And that, week, that month, I actually did a six-week series on politics on politics, the church, and Jesus. And I started every sermon with these words. I said three or four things. And for me, what I was hoping to model was calm presence, differentiation. I said, first of all, if you're voting for Trump, or if you're voting for Biden, I want to let you know from deep down in my heart that you're welcome here. A lot of churches can't do that. And the people who needed to hear that, quite frankly, were Trump supporters in my church. They've seen my website, my Facebook. They they know what I'm for and against and all that. But these are people I love. And I have to say, no matter who you vote for, you're welcome here. Secondly, My hope is that you would see your politics through the lens of Jesus and his kingdom and not Jesus through the lens of your politics. 
Thirdly, I said, my hope is that you would be curious as to why people in our community see the world differently than you do and land at different conclusions. And then fourthly, that you would be prayerful and humble. And I began my sermon every week with that. I know what it's like to preach a message without doing modeling that and creating spaces for that to take place. And it never ends well. And I think our church in that year experienced a a greater sense of presence with one another. Not that we're seeing the world in the same way, because quite frankly, there's massive differences. But we're trying to model something. Last year, we're in a 10-week series on human sexuality right now in our church. Easy stuff, you know. Um, Ten-week series where we've covered a myriad of things, covering gender identity, covering the church and the LGBTQ community, covering shame, covering marriage, singleness across the board. And I realized that in order to have our community not split and be present, it's going to take a long time of preparation. And so we're in a 10-week series now, but I've prepared for this for a year. Multiple spaces for conversation. And I, I want to talk to those who are pastors and leaders and those who are shaping culture in maybe uh, uh, unique ways or in uh, ways that are driving or directing the direction of a particular congregation. Over the course of a year, I had multiple gatherings with our elders. If I think of it in concentric circles, it's elders, it's our pastoral team, and then our community, leadership community as a whole. And I can't tell you how many meetings I had. I worked my butt off studying, reading. This is how we're going to, I like to do it. Let's get some feedback, lots of pushback. And then we had our 10-week series that started. We're in about week six right now. January, February, and April, I was still feeling anxiety around what could happen. And then something happened in me. I just felt the peace of God because we have journeyed together. And I don't know if we're going to engage as a church, big C, big picture issues without creating spaces like that to be present to God, present to ourselves, present to others. When I think about the kind of subterranean material that's beneath us, it's very easy to avoid ourselves, as I mentioned. When I think about three traditions in particular, I think about three ways of thinking about church, the evangelical tradition, the charismatic tradition, the progressive kind of thrust of tradition, mainline traditions. When I think about that, it's very easy to have a particular thrust and avoid the work of interior examination. For example, in the evangelical tradition, the emphasis is on right thinking, um, right thinking. And um, as long as you got the right doctrine, you're good. Are you believing the right stuff? And you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who loves theology more than I do. Maybe as much as I do. But you'll be hard-pressed to find... I, I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I went to Powell's bookstore yesterday. What a gift. I mean, the Spirit of God was in that place. <laughs> Every room, the purple room, the red room, I was like, glory, 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 holy, holy. 
you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who loves books and all that more than I do. But this is what I know about the Bible as well and what the Bible says. Um, demons have good theology too. <laughs> you ever notice in the Bible that the people who recognized Jesus were usually demons and not his disciples? <laughs> Jesus walked into a room, they go, we know who you are. He does a miracle before his disciples are like, who is this? <laughs> it's very easy to think that right thinking is enough. It's very easy to think that right experience is enough. I come from a Pentecostal tradition. Um, I love the move of the Spirit. I long for an encounter with the risen Jesus that transcends me giving words to it. Something that my soul knows, that it knows, that it knows that it's been kissed by God. I long to see healing and physically pray for that in our church all the time. May the Spirit come and break through in our, you know, in our world. And this is what I know about people who have right experiences. I'm fine with you having a right experience, but if that right experience or that fresh experience doesn't lead to greater love, um, I don't think it's the experience Jesus really wants for us. And so I'm fine if you get slain in the spirit. I just hope when you get up, you're loving better. I'm fine if you're talking in tongues and all that, but, but if you're talking in tongues and gossiping about your neighbor, I mean, come on now. And so it's very easy to have right experience and avoiding the work of interiority. And then it's easy to have right action, justice, compassion, mercy, mission, evangelism. And what I've discovered in the process in this as well, and I've seen all these things in me, is that I could be an ambassador for justice and be mean. And have a corrosive anger. I'm not talking about the kind of anger that, you know, when, when, when we see in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about, you've heard it said not to commit murder, but I tell you if you're angry with your brother, that word anger there, orgazomenos in Greek, is, is not just a passing kind of moment of anger. It's just this stewing. It's more, it's more resentment. It's the orgazomenos that leads to the raka. When Jesus says, if you say raka to your brother or sister, you're in danger of judgment. It's, just, it's contempt. It's something deep inside of us. And I know what it's like to want to be hungry for justice and be mean. And what Jesus invites us to is, how do we wrestle faithfully with Scripture? How do we open ourselves up to experiences of the Spirit of God? How do we work for justice and mercy and at the same time not be a stranger to ourselves? And at the same time, allow God to do deep work within us. Isn't this the premise of my predecessor? You said emotional health and spiritual maturity can't be separated. That is that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That you can have all the Bible in the, your head, but if you're not doing the hard work of navigating your own feelings, it's not an indication of spiritual maturity, but it's an indication of spiritual immaturity. 
That our people in our church can be volunteering and given money, but if we don't know how to negotiate our differences, it's not an indication of how spiritually mature someone is. It's more of an indication of how spiritually immature someone is. And so Jesus is after the transformation of our, our entire selves, including the inside. And so again, to talk about calm presence doesn't mean we're emotional robots. It doesn't mean we're unaffected. You know, I, I love Star Wars. I love Jedis. I'm playing, uh, I just beat Fallen Order and I'm playing Survivor right now. It's just wonderful. I mean, my son, we're bonding over it. They said he was supposed to be 17. He's nine. Uh, we're playing together. Uh, bad parenting, I know. But, we're, but and, 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 you know, Jedis are about no, no attachment, you know, no feeling. We're not talking about being emotional robots here. We're talking about not being driven by emotional reactivity. Emotional reactivity. There's a pastor who was interviewed a few years ago, really well-known pastor, and he said, I don't ever get anxious. And I thought, that's an impossibility. <laughs> because to be human is to be anxious. Now, if you define ang- anxiety by excessive worry, concern, fearfulness, fretting, now I, I get what you're saying. But anxiety, again, is an automatic response to a real or perceived threat. And whether that automatic response is through avoidance, through manipulation, through anger, um, we all have this coursing through our bodies in one way or another. So the question is, how do we live beyond reactivity? And again, back to this phrase on self-differentiation. Self-differentiation, I I believe that pastors would do well to... um, and, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Put down half of the theology books that you pick up and start picking up family systems theory books. Don't do away with your theology, but add some things to it. And I've been a student of family. My, my predecessor got his doctorate in family systems theory with a focus on the genogram. And for the last 15 years, um, my studies have gone deep into family systems theory. And in family systems, it's self-differentiation. What I'm talking about here, about calm presence, and I just want to offer a few definitions to kind of see it from different angles here. When I talk about self-differentiation, we're talking about the process of becoming an I while remaining close to others, especially in times of high anxiety. Another way of saying it is what I just said, remaining close to God, close to myself, and close to others in times of high anxiety. A wonderful way of thinking about it is what... Pete said, remaining connected to people and yet not having your action or behavior determined by them. Remaining connected and not having your reactions or behavior determined by them. And so again, at the core of it is the two polar opposite realities that we are tempted to go into is fusion and cutoff. And the question is, where do you go when anxiety surfaces? And I know what your answer is. Your answer is going to be, it depends. It depends on who I have the anxiety with. For some people, you cut off. For some people, you fuse into them. But growing an awareness of this is part of the journey. For a person on the low end of differentiation, they disappear again. Your values are not heard, which is a big part. When, we, when I lead this in my church, I find that most people, by the end of a course that we lead, 
are in many ways so moved because they live their entire lives believing, I don't have a voice. And so part of the journey of spiritual formation for us is helping people have a voice. Naming your values. You have a voice. You have something to say. We need to hear it. And then on the other end of the spectrum is people who are on the low end of differentiation. It's departing from others. Cutting off from people. Shutting others down. And for some people, we have to learn what it means to be present. Lifting your voice and being present. Speaking and listening. That's really the core of calm presence, the core of self-differentiation. And the question is, where do you go? whenever this emerges. And this is important to hold this intention because whenever this is taught, it's very easy for people to hear one thing in this. I've heard people say to me, well, I'm just being differentiated, Rich, because I'm gonna lift up my voice now and let you know what I think. Or they say that about a particular issue. And then that's it. I'm just here to let you know my voice. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lift it. And they have zero desire to emotionally connect. It's just, here it is. Do you have those people in your church as well? Uh, or is it just in New York? Uh, and so again, I want people to lift their voice and at the same time remain connected. I often get hear this about connection. But what about boundaries, Rich? What about boundaries? You're talking to remain connected and this is what I want to say about that just briefly. Boundaries are really important. I think there are certain people that need to be boundaried and certain people that we have to actually distance ourselves from. But here's the question. Is, are the boundaries we establish rooted in reactivity? Or are they rooted in calm presence? There's certain people that I'm with and I realize we're just going in circles here and I realize there's nothing really that's moving us in a particular direction and I have to set a boundary now. And let someone know, I just can't continue with this conversation anymore. And there's a boundary that's erected. And I know what it's like to create a boundary out of fear and anxiety or anger. And so the question is not whether boundaries need to be established. The question is, are the boundaries we're creating emerging out of our own emotionality and reactivity and anxiety? Or is it emerging out of calm presence? And so... The challenge with this here is of growing in differentiation, growing in calm presence, if I could say it a different way, is the competing pull to be either over-responsible for others' reactions or to be emotionally apathetic to others. I know what it's like to be emotionally over-responsible for someone's reactions. Um, As a pastor... I have been hired by our board of elders to lead the church, to cast vision, not in isolation. I I, I go here, this is where I I think the Lord is leading us to go. What do you think? Help strengthen this for me. Give me some pushback. What am I, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? But they're, they're calling me to lead this congregation. And I know what it's like to be, feel over responsible for others' reactions where I don't speak the truth. There's, uh, on our staff right now, I just sent an email yesterday in which there's an area of our church where I realize I have not been leading well here. And it's time for me to name my values and say, can we have a conversation about this? This is where I'd like us to go. And I want your feedback. And I caught myself yesterday having a hard time pressing send. 
because I was like, how is this person going to receive this? Maybe I shouldn't say it at all. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to be pissed off, resentful, angry at myself, passive aggressive when the thing is not going the way. And so I realize within myself I can be over-responsible and I know the times when I can be emotionally apathetic. And the times in me where I go, I really don't care what you think about this. This is what we're going to do. And on both of those spectrums, the question is, how do we begin to grow in this and name this reality so that we are naming our values and remaining close to one another? And naming our values in such a way where it's not my way or the highway, can we discern together? Can the Spirit strengthen what we're doing here through collaboration and conversation? But the, the, the competing pull is being over-responsible or being emotionally apathetic. And I wonder where you're at on the journey. Like as a pastor, as a leader right now, I know it might depend on who we are in conversation with, but where do you go in moments of high anxiety, of over-responsible or emotionally apathetic? And so and another way of saying it is what, what we must learn to do in differentiation and calm presence is it was, we must learn how to healthily separate so as to healthily attach. Like when I, when I marry a couple, perform a wedding, you know, it's the saying, you know, the two shall become one. And the question is always, which one? <laughs> and I've had to learn 17 years of marriage. My, I, I, my tendency, you know, Rosie's an eight on the Enneagram. She's like, lead or get out of the way. That's, that's my wife. And uh, I'm a seven, I wanted to play, have a good time, and all that stuff there. And I've had to learn over the last 17 years, especially I'd say the last six to seven years, how to separate from her. Honey, I don't see it in that same way. Uh, I disagree with that. No, I didn't like the movie at all. What? No, I didn't like it at all. And why did you like it? I've had to learn how to separate... Why? Otherwise, because now it's, there's, there's, a, there's a false togetherness now. It's a togetherness that's not rooted in truth. It's a togetherness that's not rooted in integrity. It's a togetherness that's now rooted in the avoidance of anxiety and the avoidance of conflict. And so our job as pastors and leaders is to help our people healthily separate so as to healthily attach. When I think about this, I think about some stories in the Bible about differentiation, calm presence. There are four examples that come to mind of good and bad examples of this happening. I think about Jesus. Jesus, our Lord, um, exemplified this better than anyone in human history. Jesus is decisive, doing the will of the Father, and connected. Decisive and connected. There's so many competing pressures around him. Everyone has a will for Jesus' life. Everyone wants Jesus to do a certain thing. The crowds, the disciples, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And Jesus is able to be decisive and remain connected. I see a 
wonderful example of this as well in David. I'm just devotionally right now in a season I'm reading through 1 Samuel. Just enjoying what I'm learning there. And I'm always struck by David and Saul. And how David, even as a young teenager, was able to, he had some, uh, there was a precociousness to him in terms of maturity. And what I love about David, Goliath is on one side, the people of God are on the other, and David comes with lunch for his brothers. No one wants to fight this guy. David overhears, whoever wins gets the king's daughter, and no taxes. He's like, you said no taxes? <laughs> any tax here, Kevin? Is there any tax in Portland? or, or no, that's, a, that's a pretty nice deal here. Right? That's a pretty, all right, let's talk about that later. Uh, I'm curious about that. Um, David hears the story of what's going to be given. And he says, I'll fight him. And what does Saul do? Saul says, the only way you can fight him is if you put on my armor. He's out of concern out of care. What does David do? He remains close to Saul. He tries on the armor. Imagine if David was low on the differentiation, arrogant, he would have said, later for your armor, I've fought bears and lions and tigers. Oh my, I've done it all. And, and, and later for your armor. And that would have been a very, uh, could you imagine the moment around of him just totally distancing himself from Saul in that moment. But he tries on the armor. He walks around. He's close to Saul. And then he recognizes, I can't go in this. And then he takes it off. He's connected. He's separate. He's connected again. He takes it off. And he's decisive. He beats Goliath. Now, there are two ways this could have gone. This could have gone. David could have totally worn the armor and would have been slaughtered. Or he could have just totally disregarded Saul and gone and fought himself. And there would have been another rift. There was already problems with Saul anyway. It would have been an even greater rift there. But he was differentiated. I think about that. I, I've had to learn this with my predecessor. To take over for a pastor who's been there for 20 plus years. It's The reason why it usually doesn't happen in a good way is because... There's, there's just a low bar of differentiation, especially between the pastor and the person who's coming in. And so I've had to learn over the years, I'm, this is my 10th year in this role now, I've had to learn, when do I have to listen to Pete? Like Moses listens to Jethro. And when do I have to take off the armor like David did with Saul? When do I have to say, Pete, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I think I'm going to do that. And then when I need to say, Pete, I don't think though, that's your vision, that's not mine. And we've had to wrestle with that. But that's differentiation. Growing in calm presence. I think about a negative example of that with Aaron and the people of Israel. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. The people of God, they're free from Egypt and Moses says, I'll be back and God wants to talk to me up in the mountain. He goes up into the mountain, um, loses reception, and they can't get a hold of him. <laughs> and so Aaron's texting, you know, you're right, bro, when are you coming back? 
Um, you know, he's all he's up in age. Are, are you okay? No answer. The people get restless. The people get anxious. We need a God here. We need we, we need someone who's going to lead us here. And so, what does Aaron say? He he succumbs to the anxiety and says, "All right, give me all your gold." He takes the gold. He the Bible says that he fashions it like he's he's working this thing, man. And then Moses comes down with his two iPads and he's like, <laughs> his tablets, and he says like, what is going on? And he shatters them. And he goes, Aaron, dude, what happened? And he says, I don't know what happened. The people gave me the gold and all of a sudden this thing just came out. <laughs> the Bible says he was like working the thing, you know what I'm saying? He was working the thing. But he was caught in their anxiety. And he did not know how to assert himself, to remain connected, and yet stay decisive. I think about Paul's letters as documents of differentiation, where Paul spoke some pretty hard truth. And at the same time, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. I love you as a father loves his children. I mean, Paul is connected and he's decisive. And again, the question is, where do you go, friends? Where do you go? When tension, when anxiety surfaces, where do you go at work? Where do you go with your parents? Where do you go with your children? Where do you go with your friends, your partner? Where, where do you go? And then the next question is why? Why are you going there? When I think about this, like another way of saying it, and I think this might come up in a later slide, but it feels good to say it now, not just where do you go, but the question about growing in differentiation is who makes you anxious and why? Who are the people like, you see the email come in, you haven't even read it, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> For me, the person who has made me most anxious has been the board chair of New Life Fellowship Church. And then I discovered something. I discovered the first board chair that I had before he became board chair. We go out to dinner, coffee. Hey, do you want to get some coffee? Absolutely, man. Let's have some coffee. Let's have a good time. Get a meal. And then he became the board chair. And he said, hey, let's get some coffee. And I said, oh, no. What does he want now? Different role. And then I realized... It's not just him, because when my next board chair came and she would say, hey, Rich, want to get some coffee? I said, yeah, yeah, get some coffee. And then she became the board chair and I realized, oh, no. What does she want? And I had to work out in me why it's not the person now, it's what this person represents now. It's this title that rep they represent something. And I had to do some deep soul searching to identify the ways that my family of origin has shaped me, which is why we say at our church that Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. That is to say, we all have positive and negative legacies that we've received and perpetuate one generation to the next. Ne legacies that we must embrace and cherish and celebrate and legacies that we must resist and repent of. And I realized growing up, eldest of five, I cannot remember, especially in my teenage years, ever being 
corrected by my parents. Now, it wasn't because I was an angel, not at all. But there was just a dynamic in our home where hard conversations weren't had. A dynamic in our home where they were not confronting me about stuff there. Love me, but they, just, they, they didn't have that stuff in them. And I realized I've lived most of my life not being confronted by people. I've lived much of my life not being corrected by people. And so when the board chair says, hey, can I bring up something you said in your sermon? Something's happening in me. I want to get out of there now. I want to fight back. And so who gets you anxious? What situations make you anxious? Anxiety is a core force within us that must be discerned. And again, it courses through all of our bodies. It's this automatic response to a real or to a perceived threat. It's a core. And so to think about this, Peter Steinke has written a number of wonderful books on this here, and I recommend his, his, his readings, Ed Friedman, Murray Bowen, all that there. But Steinke talks about the difference between acute anxiety and chronic anxiety. That acute anxiety is situational, it's time-based. It's to be humans to be anxious. There, there are moments where someone says, can we talk about something? Ah, there's something in me and it's acute. And then there's an anxiety that's chronic. It's just like never-ending. And I know what it's like to carry chronic anxiety. And it really wasn't until a few years ago where I felt like the Lord was really doing something in my soul where I was no longer carrying chronic anxiety. But it's momentary, some anxiety, so I just want to normalize that. It's normal to be anxious. But the question is, when chronic anxiety emerges, what does God want to do in us? And part of this has to do with paying attention to our reactions. Our reactions are a wonderful place for revelation. At New Life we say, what does my reaction tell me about myself? I know what my reaction tells me about you. But that's not the big question. The question is, what does the anxiety tell me about myself? When we lead small groups and we do small group trainings, this is a really important question. When someone triggers you, when, when, when you notice a disproportionate reaction in you, what does your anxiety tell you about you? How do you turn to wonder and go, Lord, what's happening inside of me right now? So I can remain close and connected to others. Stanky says these words. He says, chronic anxiety is not specific to any threat. Any issue, topic, or circumstance can provoke chronically anxious people. Consequently, they have little capacity to step out of their experience, observe their own emotionality, reflect on what's happening, and make choices based in principles to manage their lives. And so, what anxiety are you carrying? Who makes you most anxious? What situations produce the most anxiety in you? And part of this is learning how to pay attention to our reactions. In 20, in uh, my first book, The Deeply Formed Life, I, I talk about interior examination and a tool that I created called just a reaction inventory. And I want to just put this before you. Some of you might have read that and I just want to hold it before you again. In 2018, I found myself chronically anxious in a particular season. I was getting triggered left and right by so many things. And I had two moments where the Holy Spirit met me. The first moment was God was helping to identify the trauma in my life. 
I read a book by Alice Miller called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And uh, not, a, not a Christian book, it's well, th- uh, well worth reading. And I was beginning to discover that, you know, trauma happens on two levels. D.W. Winnicott, psychiatrist in the 1950s, said that it happens, this is my paraphrase of it, something happened that should not have happened. And something didn't happen that should have happened. Like developmental trauma is about something that didn't happen that should have happened. Psychiatrist Robert Stolaro said that trauma happens when emotional pain cannot find a relational home. So we all grow up to, with varying degrees of, with gaps in our lives. And so I started focusing on the traumas, the things that happened that shouldn't have happened and the things that didn't happen that should have happened. And I never forgot, I was in my dining room and journaling pages and pages and pages, opening myself up to the Spirit. And I say this, I'm usually pretty measured in when I say things like this, uh, but it felt to me in that moment that I was, there was deliverance that happened in me, that I felt like the Lord was casting something out of me in my dining room. I found myself with a, a lightness, Wow. Lord, you've done something in me that's hard to explain. Alongside of that, I decided as well to pay attention to my reactions. Lord, what should I pay attention in my, to my, my reactions? And so I decided to ask myself a set of questions for a month. And whenever I find myself disproportionately responding to something, an email, a critical remark. Someone said, you know what you could have done differently about that sermon or whatever. I mean, and then something's rising up in me. I would pay attention to my reactions. Disproportionate anger, avoidance, uh, fear. And I said, I'm going to engage in five questions for a month straight. And whenever it comes. And I didn't do it every day, but I did it probably every two to three days. I was journaling because my anxiety levels were really high. And I want to just submit to you this inventory for your own reflection. Um, five questions. Whenever you notice in your body a disproportionate reaction, what happened? What am I feeling? What's the story I'm telling myself? What's the gospel say? What's the counterinstinctual act that's required of me? To grow in calm presence is to pay attention to our reactions. So now we are truly able to be present with others because we are allowing Jesus to do some deep work inside of us. What happened? What am I feeling? What's the story I'm telling myself? What's the gospel say? What's the counterinstinctual act that's required of me? I, I, I remember the day where it became real for me, this. I was doing it, I was doing it, and then one day a really well-known leader in our nation saw something I posted on Instagram and she had a critique for it. She didn't say it publicly. She DM'd me. She was kind. She was generous with her words. And she was helping me. And I saw her feedback as a threat. And my response, first response was, who do you think you are? And I closed the laptop, just angry. And then I realized like seven minutes later, oh yeah, I've been doing this exercise. I think it's a good idea for me to get into my daily session here with this because I was so angry. What happened? 
a really well-known leader I respect criticized me very gently. What am I feeling? Shame. Deep shame. Embarrassment. This This was not public. And yet I was feeling so much shame. What's the story I'm telling myself? I'll never be the kind of pastor, writer, human, Christian that I want to be. Look at all the gaps in my life. I'll never be what I want to be. What's the gospel say? Jesus only works with people who have gaps. The grace of God is for you. God is with you. What's the counter-instinctual act that's required of me? As I've led this around the country with many people, I've discovered, and in my own congregation, that what most of us need in that space there is a space for externalizing what's happening in our soul. Here's what I discovered about myself. I discovered that whenever something happens like that, I can go into a hole and go really deep in it and resolve the hole with me and God or me by myself and then come out of the hole a few days later. And what I discovered was I don't think I can ever avoid the hole but I do know I don't have to stay as long as I had been and I don't have to go as deep as I had been. And part of that is just with external. Like, I remember the first day where I went to Rosie and said, honey, can I, can I talk to you about something? I'm just feeling really embarrassed about something. I'm feeling shame. Showed her the message. And I just, I need a hug right now. I need some perspective from you. And she was so great. She said, you let me in. Thank you for letting me in. I've done that with, I meet with three pastor friends the first Wednesday of each month for 90 minutes. And we are talking about stuff like this. Guys, I'm feeling really deep anxiety, shame around this. I just need a space to talk about it. We did that most recently in Nashville for our retreat. We talked about what we're carrying and then prayed and prophesied over each other. I love what you guys are. No pastor walks alone. That we need spaces to externalize what's going on inside of us. What happened? What am I feeling? What's the story I'm telling myself? What does the gospel say? And so what am I getting at? I'm saying that interior examination, the work that we're doing here, it requires us to do a few things, to, to grow in naming and recognizing and managing our own feelings. To grow in praying our feelings. One of my favorite definitions of prayer is lifting mind and heart to God. That God already knows what's going on and which is why I love the book of Psalms where the psalmist knows how to pray feelings. This is what's going on inside of me. We grow in our capacity to be present to others and their feelings. We grow in discerning the deeper messages beneath our emotions. And that's a great time for that alarm to go off because I'm going to lead you in a quick exercise. Thank you for that. I'm serious, this is great timing, thank you. Um, I want to lead you in a very simple exercise and um, I'm going to give you five minutes to do this. I'm going to walk you through it. And after I do that, that might be a good time to transition into prayer. 
We have an exercise, maybe some of you are familiar with this. I trust that you are, but this is what I've discovered as a pastor and as a human being. Um, I could be familiar with a lot of stuff and not be doing it. And so there's an exercise called Explore the Iceberg that we use in our church to identify what's happening beneath the surface based on four elementary questions. And this is what I've discovered in my context, in my church, and around the country. I'm able to do this with my children around our dinner table. I'm able to do this with our children as I'm praying for them at night before we go to bed. As a matter of fact, this is something we have our, our little flip chart for during dinner, and we do it maybe once or twice a week, where we're just, what are you mad about? You sad about? And my eight-year-old son, Nathan, and my 14-year-old daughter, Karis, and Rosie, and we're just, we're, we're processing together. What I want to do is I want to lead you into this. Uh, I want to invite you maybe to take out your phone or a journal, and I want to help to just prime the pump a little bit. I, I've done this with children. I've done this with PhDs and engineers and theologians and all the rest. And I have found that everyone benefits from the simplicity of a practice like this. Four simple questions, and I'm going to give you maybe a minute each to either name or maybe offer a prayer before God in writing or if, if that's, uh, if you prefer maybe to just offer that in your heart, feel free to do that as well. The first question is, what are you mad about? It could be something that's happening to you personally, something you're mad about church, something you're mad about what's happening in the world. What are you mad about? And just take a moment to offer that before God before we go to the next question. Second question is, what are you sad about? What's bringing grief? What are you feeling? What's, are there any losses that have come your way? People leaving your church, relationships ending challenges, disappointments. What are you sad about? Can you lift mind and heart to God? Third question is, what are you anxious about? Where is there high reactivity or maybe excessive concern and worry? What are you anxious about? Lastly, What are you glad about? Where's their joy arising? What are you grateful for? What are the gifts of God that have come your way? Can we just name that in the presence of God? Amen. Hey, thanks so much for listening to part two of Calming Leadership, how we as leaders can be a steady presence in a world fractured with anxiety. We are going to have a couple more gospel gatherings this year. So make sure to go to our website, togetherpdx.org slash events, so you can see the next one live. And if you want a video version of this episode, go to togetherpdx.org slash podcast.